Hi everyone, welcome to Path to Glory, a Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. I'm on here, continuing our Warband Wisdom series, where Jonathan and I are taking turns covering each Warband with a special guest. We want these episodes to be as evergreen as possible, but as a point of reference, this episode was recorded on September 10th, 2020, just after the release of Morgox Crushes and Morgwaite's Blade Coven. My special guest today is Michael Carlin, who is here to talk t- to me about Molog's Mob. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. I know that you're really excited to talk about Molog today. I'm, I'm kind of bursting with excitement. I, I, I love the big troll. Yeah. Well, before we get into uh, what makes you love him so much, um, for any of our listeners who have not uh, heard Mike on our podcast before or listened to some of our previous episodes where he's been on, um, we're just going to do a quick guest introduction where we'll ask you a couple questions on you know your hobby and how you got involved with the game. And so, um, I guess first question, Mike, how long have you been involved with uh, tabletop gaming? So, um, I suppose if you're going like a super broad definition, like which is yeah, we go with a super broad definition. I've played I've played board games since I was a kid. Um, like if you count something like Monopoly since basically I was old enough to play games. If you want to be a little bit more picky, um, I, I think I was about 9 or 10, and I played Hero Quest. Um, and that's probably like probably the the first thing I'd have played that you can kind of count as properly tabletop stuff. Um, absolutely loved Hero Quest. Have you played Hero Quest at all? I've never played it, actually. It's, it's, it's an absolute classic. Uh, loved it to bits. I, I I loved it enough that I even went to a local library, and uh, they used to release like um, books which were like had like a mini story in them. Mm-hmm. But at the back, they'd have new scenarios for you to play, and I'd like take those new scenarios and I'd play them out single player. Wow. Yeah. Um, is, yeah. is that the one so where I'd... you have like a, a mage, like an elf mage, like a human, a dwarf, like warrior, or in a, like a I don't know witch hunter or something? So there's four classes, but like this is so this is such an old school game. It was made in the 80s, and like obviously, the, well, the distinction between classes and races was very vague. So the four kind of characters you could play, so to speak, were barbarian, wizard, elf, and dwarf. Oh, so elf and dwarf were a class. Wow. Yeah, I I, I say class. I think character is probably the best term. Like each each of the each of the each of them had their own specific set of rules. Um, some of the rules were if you were to, if you were to play it, put them in a modern board game, you'd think was a bit ugh. like you you had to roll to move, and like what you got on your dice was how much movement points you had, which was quite swingy. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I mean at the time, like the kind of it was a dungeon crawler. It was one of the first dungeon crawlers ever, and like the idea of kind of delving through this dungeon and kind of your your fighting hordes of enemies and powering up with loot, it it was great. I loved it. Yeah, I I'm a big fan of dungeon crawlers even now. And so I've played a couple of like the D and D and the Gloomhaven stuff, and that's really fun. And so um, I maybe I'll find an old copy and see if I can run a game through. I even enjoy the um, the ones that they did recently. It was like Silver Tower, I think. Mm. Um, so very cool. yeah, I've I've not played it, but I've heard it's very good. I I quite enjoy uh, Descent Second Edition from Fantasy Fight Games. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a weird one where so you. you there's four people who play cooperatively as the heroes and versus another player in like a kind of weird competitive situation where they're not actually the dungeon master, but they're actively trying to kill the players. 
Uh, that's quite fun. I'll have to check that one out. I'll uh, I'll follow up with you after the episode for sure. Okay. Um, so sounds like you've been playing miniatures and board games for a while. Um, when did you start playing Underworlds? Um, so pretty early on in Shades Bar days. Um, it was just before the Skaven uh, expansion, uh, Skaven and Chosen Axis expansions came out, um, which I remember was a big deal because Chosen Axis came with Ready for Action. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And what got you into the game? Um, a couple of uh, friends in Sheffield uh, had started playing it, and they just invited me to go to their to theirs to play some games. Like I already, I I, I, was, I was I've kind of there's a lot of people in the UK who are very aware of Games Workshop, even if they don't play the games themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was always someone who's kind of flitting around the edges of being aware or playing it. I had a I had a 40k army in fourth edition. Uh, Space Marine Biker Army, but then I didn't really keep playing for long. I played more time for a bit, but I you know, I wasn't like a full hobbyist. Um, and some friends who were more into it had invited me to play this, saying this might be up my street. And as soon as I played a couple of practice games, I was like, "Yep, yeah, no, I'm all in on this. This is great." Right on. Yeah, it's. I mean, we've we've we have talked about it for ages, and we continue and we can continue to talk about it for ages about how how much fun this game is. So um, we'll just jump to the next question. Uh, what aspect of the game do you enjoy the most? Ooh, so... Right. Of everything, and I'm not sure if you technically count this as a game, but as the whole experience, honestly, the social aspect. Like, going and traveling and meeting with people, and, like, making acquaintances, and then sometimes turning those acquaintances into good friends through meeting them a lot. So that bit, absolutely, hands down, that's the best part of it for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in some cases... You know, like, I've only met you once, and that was just mm. briefly, but I actually speak to you quite a bit. So, it's crazy yeah. how you can make friends through just the internet, in a way. Yeah, I, I was gutted when uh, Nova got cancelled. I was really looking forward to meeting up with you and some of the other American players, and kind of just going out to eat some proper American food and chilling out. Yeah, well, if they ever do, I guess, Masters again at Nova. Um, mm. we'll take you out to a nice steak dinner. Oh, that's where it's at. Yeah. Um, so are there any special moments that you're currently proud of in the game? Um, it counts kind of a bit, a bit of an obvious one, but absolutely winning, uh, the, I believe it was an October grand clash last year at Warhammer world, uh, with the grim watch. Um, I, I've been playing for quite a long time and I've been, I've been at the edges of kind of winning grand clashes or I've, I've sometimes had top four finishes, etc. but I've never quite converted. So actually converting, um, it was great. It was a fantastic feeling. I mean, playing against Phil Kelly in the final, like I, I like I said, you know, I've been very aware of Games Workshop stuff for a while. So Phil Kelly's kind of one of those really big names that I recognized from, from, from being younger and reading all the stuff. Um, so that, that, that felt fantastic. Um, getting all the messages from all the people in the community who were hyped about me winning and stuff afterwards. Oh, that, that, that moment was, was brilliant. That's awesome. Yeah. Like almost like a picture perfect moment where you beat like one of the most well-known like hobby, you know, I guess people in their, uh, that industry in a really tight set of games. I remember I watched it with Tom, um, live cause it was being streamed and, uh, uh you know, I, it was a really cool moment. And then you got to do a post interview, I think, afterwards. That must have been cool. Yeah, it was. I was very I was very nervous, but yeah, it was good. Yeah. Well, congratulations again on that and um again, very cool memory for sure. 
Um, last question before we get into the warband. Are you working on anything like game or hobby-wise right now? I know that you're not a big hobbyist, but mm-hmm. anything that you're particularly working on within the game? Um, so we are, I mean, a bit of a shameless plug, but I mean, still, I'm still plugging away at the blog. Um, we got articles out on all the new content for the new expansions. Um, I am debating what I'm going to do as a next article. It's one of those where <laughs> without lots of tournaments happening, um, there's less to talk about. It, it certainly helps that we've had expansions now. Like that gave me something to write about. Um, so I'm kind of scratching my head a bit more for content and what to do. Uh, and I've got we've got the new podcast going with Tom um, called Chatting Crit. I definitely remember the name of it, so I'm not going to get in trouble. Um, that's that's been enjoyable. So probably probably creating content is like my main bit of the hobby right now. Um, a little bit is um, there's online tournaments still ongoing. I'm really enjoying the league that you and uh, Jonathan have set up, the team league. Um, at this moment, I think we're quite odds on to make the cut for the uh, top four. Um, but you know, famous last words like this: this is this is this is going into the record, so it's possible. Like, there are definitely some outcomes where we don't make the top four. Um, but either way, I've I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed that, and I'd recommend to anyone if you can play the Grand Alliance format, do it's such a fantastic way to play the game. Yeah, right on. I appreciate the kind words there. It's certainly our favorite. Uh, variation of the game and so um happy that you're enjoying it and and i'm pretty sure you'll make top four i was looking at some of the numbers and it's very unlikely that you won't um but you know as you mentioned things can happen so we'll wish you luck there and knock on some wood um you mentioned uh you were working on the blog and the uh podcast you named the podcast but you didn't name the blog and so if our readers or sorry our listeners aren't familiar with uh your blog could you go ahead and plug that in yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, uh, Steel City Underworlds. Right on. Yeah, Steel City Underworlds. Probably, I think you're, I think the second oldest now, that's still up and so, running. So, the oldest was the Cataphane Relic one by Jamie Giblin, but he he ha- he has tapped out. So after that, I think it's probably John Reese's, and then yeah, I think it might be us. I think we might be the second oldest right now. Yeah, I think I think it goes. Is is John's, yours, and then mine? Mine started mm. just three months after yours, I think. So, crazy, crazy how I, it feels like we just all started very recently, but it's like three years in now, almost or two years. Yeah, it's weird because it, it feels like in a way it's gone by like a flash, but at the same time, if you think about all the stuff that's happened in that time, it's nuts. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. Um, but yes, uh, for those of you who are listening, Steel City Underworlds is a great blog, lots of great content, notorious for their lengthy articles, but uh, very, very well put together. Oh, thank you. I'm blushing now. (laughs) Um, I mean it. It's good. So um, let's jump into Molog's Mob. So, well, I know that you're a big Molog fan, and I'm sure that'll be evident as we go through these questions, but I guess let's start with saying, what is it about this warband that makes them worth learning and playing? So, um, I would say the biggest thing about this warband that makes it worth learning for... So, there's two different ways to approach this. If you are just looking for a specific warband to play, right? You are looking for, I want to be maybe a warband loyalist, like this is going to be mine. The reasons I would put up for Molog potentially being your choice 
is it's all almost essentially all on one fighter. There's no other warband that is as focused on a single fighter as Morlog's Mob. Um, Hrothgorn's Man Trappers come close. They're a more kind of modern take on the kind of uh, big boy archetype, as I like to call it. But Molog is absolutely the extreme and the epitome of that style. Uh, if you like Voltroning up one fighter to like make them the most powerful thing in the game, and it already starts as one of the most powerful things in the game, absolutely go go on uh, Molog's Mob. If you're looking at this from a perspective of you're trying to play all different aspects of the game, and you're wondering if like learning Molog's Mob and playing them, what that would give to you, I would say that it gives you a lot of uh, it gives you a lot of skills in positioning. Um, your main fighter having uh, range two attack, but being pretty much the only thing that is going to deliver attacks that kill, makes you very very aware, hyper aware of your positioning, about how to maximise as many attacks as you can per round. And even kind of uh, we'll get into this later, but placement of the stalag squig in the deployment phase, you you have a lot of key decisions about where your fighters go um very early on and throughout the game so if you if you're if you're trying to learn all aspects of the game i would definitely try a few stints with monologues mob right on so just to confirm you're saying that in order for someone to just understand the game um on a in a very unique play style which is just maybe perhaps not as unique but as 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 hyper focused on voltroning one fighter and, and making them the focal point of every single decision you make, including your opponent's decisions towards you, then they should play Moloch's Mob. Yes. Right on. And do you think it's worth learning just, uh, um, worth playing Moloch just to learn about how he functions and operates as well? I had to, obviously, there's always an opportunity cost with anything, right? Mm -hmm. If you're learning something, you're not learning something else. Um, I would say if you are, you know, committed to getting good at this game, um, at some point, I, I would say even not towards the bottom half of Warbands, probably in the top half, maybe in like the top eight Warbands you should play as Molog's Mob, because it's such a unique experience. And when you play something, you learn a lot about how to play against it. Um, so many times, one of the main reasons Molog can be quite a terror is because people don't know how to play against it. So learning like his strengths and his weaknesses inside out yourself is, is going to do you well. Right on. Okay. Well, tell me about the fighters. You know, you've mentioned some of them already, but what are they like and how do they work together to make a complete warband? So, I'm going to start with the big troll himself, Molog. This guy is an absolute beast. Um, seven wounds off the bat is crazy. Um, that's reasonably three attacks, maybe two attacks with, with pumped stats to kill him. Not counting upgrades yourself, right? The, Molog is not going to go down... Unless your opponent lands multiple kind, of, let's be honest, multiple big attacks like two, two, three wound attacks, uh, two, three damage attacks aren't going to kill Moloch. Uh, you need to combo it with more. Um, so very hard to kill. Um, his movement stat is three, um, which is reasonable. It's, it's you know it's, it's not ideal, but we'll get on to why it's that's actually crazy good in a moment. Um, his attack, his base attack is two smash, which is not intrinsically super accurate, but it's also not inaccurate. It's about average. Um, it starts with three damage, which is crazy great. Three damage off the bat is one of the biggest strengths a warband can have. You know, it's one of the reasons why um, Grimwatch have a lot of strength because Gristlewell comes with uh, three damage attacks. So having that off the bat is fantastic, and it's range two. 
Uh, range 2 not only means that you can repeatably get lots of attacks with Molog because you can kind of sit in the middle of a group of enemies, but it also means you can trap enemy fighters a lot easier against, uh, against walls. And when you trap them, um, for people who don't know, if you uh, have rolled a success in your attack and your opponent's rolled as many successes as you, um, then the tiebreaker um, means that you actually always hit them when they're trapped. So it actually increases your accuracy a lot. So that two smash attack has an inherent extra bit of accuracy with that extra range. Then, so the extra spice on top of all this, on his uninspired side, Moloch gets to ignore a move token. So yes, you're only movement three, but you can move and then either charge or move again. So you've effectively got six movement, which is actually crazy. Um, there's no other fighter that has as much mobility as Moloch, which sounds strange because he's a giant troll, but yeah, he, he shoots around the board. Um, now, what gets what, what kind of supercharges Moloch and makes him even more absolutely nuts is his inspired side. So his attack goes up to four damage. It's now capable of one-shotting almost all of the most powerful fighters in the game. You know, we're talking like Crushers and Hrothgorn are like some of the only fighters that, that, that survive being hit by him. Um, and his um, ability to ignore a move token gets switched to being able to ignore a charge token. So he can actually charge twice in a round. Um, or he can charge, make lots of attacks, because basically he's ignoring one charge token, and then charge again. Uh, just for reference for people who might be confused by reading his card and not thinking that's how it works, you have to have a look at the errata for how, uh, how Molog's inspired and uninspired sides work. Now it overrides what's actually written on his card. Um, oh, and one other subtle part of Moloch's kit is um, his main attack also has knockback on it. So your placement of lethal hexes very early in the game can be crazy, crazy strong. Um, people, people, almost everyone forgets that Moloch has knockback. Um, and if you're playing against something like curse breakers or rippers, if you position lethal hexes correctly, you make your one attack hit and you knock them back two hexes into a lethal hex and smack, you've killed like a really powerful fighter with that one attack. Um, Oh, and I had forgotten an absolutely crazy powerful other um, other part of Moloch's kit. He also has a scything attack. So uninspired, his scything attack is two damage, two fury, range one. Um, scything is basically hitting all enemy models adjacent to Moloch. Um, this is great versus horde warbands. Generally speaking, your your default attack, you want to be using your range two to smash one because it's more accurate. But if you can lined up multiple attacks. Um, especially multiple attacks that can kill with a scything attack. You absolutely want to go for it. Um, when inspired, Moloch goes to three fury with his scything attack. It starts to get fairly accurate. Um, into stuff like thorns and gits, and you know, support guard, those type of warbands. That scything attack is is devastating. If you can stack a couple more accuracy upgrades on there as well, like you can you can seriously kill two or three fighters with one charge. And when you've got the ability to charge again, that's that's crazy. Um, so Moloch hands down best fighter in the game love him brilliant <laughs> well that's that's extremely extremely uh evident in the way that you were just talking about how you like his, the way he functions right i mean you know the fact that he can you know move and then charge on his regular side and then double charge on his inspired side um is is, is crazy and it was the first time that i think anybody in the game fundamentally saw the 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 basic order of things kind of shift a little bit, right? No other fighter could ever do that. And I don't think any other fighter can at this point. So um, it's really cool to hear how 
he functions and and from a design perspective it is pretty neat and then as well as you know the ways in which you can manipulate some of his built-in wor- keywords as well like knockback and some of those scything attacks as well so that's pretty neat um do you think that the supporting cast that comes with Molog is um is you know a great complementing force to him right honestly right so yes and no it's it's complicated i will say in general the squigs that come with Molog are a weakness for the warband they are a way for an opponent's aggro warband to potentially get some early glory from kills um so they can challenge Molog later in the game because they it, say you've got uh, say you're playing wild hunt into Molog and you've got an objective like strong start uh, or brought to bay in your opening hand that's not going to cut the mustard into Molog, but if you can if you can uh, barrel down and charge and kill Spike Shroom or Bat Squig, absolutely it gives you a way to start playing the game against Molog. So generally speaking, the Squigs are a weakness. However, there are some use cases where the Squigs can be incredibly powerful. Um, specifically, I'm going to talk I'm going to talk about the, my favourite of them first. Um, good old Stalag Squig. Um, he's your rock. Um, the best thing about Stalag Squig is that he breaks the rules for deployment in the game Um, Stalag Squig so you place after all normal fighters are deployed you place Stalag Squig in an empty hex so it doesn't have to be a starting hex it can be an empty hex it can be in any board as well so that means he can go on objective tokens he can go on lethal hexes if you want him to although I'm about 99% sure if you do that he takes a damage Um, and there's a lot of subtle uses for him when you can do that. So the two the, the two kind of main ways you want to aggressively use Stalag Squig are if you're playing into something like Gits or Thorns, and if you look at their deployment, there is, say, one Chain Rasp next to their back um, objective token. Um, you can put Stalag Squig in that back objective token, and suddenly you've denied their ability to press the Varklav button and score temporary victory because you've, you've only given them two tokens that are available. Um, the next best use for it is if you have deployed Molog up front and he's within range two of one of the enemy fighters, you put Stalag Squig next to that fighter and you're just trying to go first and kill that fighter, the first attack of the game, without having to put a charge token on Molog, you've suddenly given yourself support. You've suddenly made, um, made, the, made the attack much more odds on. So aggressively, Stalag Squig can be quite an effective tool. A bit of a double-edged sword, though, sometimes. Like, you know, you're putting yourself next to that Chain Rasp. That same Chain Rasp inspires for free in the next activation because of it. And against some warbands, say Thundrix or any, almost any aggro warband, what you've now done is you've just given them a two-wound target in their board that they can kill without having to expose themselves. So a lot of the time, Stalag Squig will end up deploying at the back with your kind of other critters. Um and just kind of cowering in fear, hoping that Moloch can save the day for it. So it's really interesting that uh, you mentioned some of the tech surrounding the Stalag Squig, right? Because um, you're absolutely correct, depending on the Warband matchup, you can be very aggressive with him. Um, I've even, I think I've even played against, uh, you know, Moloch players who will just stick the Stalag Squig next to the first fighter in range of Moloch, just so he can get mm. the support on the first attack. Um, it's because sometimes deployment gets a bit funky where Molog is actually starting the game in range of another fighter. And so, slam the Stalag Squig there. Hopefully you win priority, smack him, and you got a kill. 
yeah no absolutely that's one of the great uses for him um and also like sometimes if you're really lucky with how deployment goes you can do that and you can also trap their fighter which makes the attack even more odds on yeah that's actually another good point i really like how you spoke about denying an objective for maybe gits and thorns because if you think about it the stalagswig does he does he start with one block or two uh, he starts with two block yeah so pretty tanky and um he he can he's actually really hard to kill if you're just a regular git or a chain rasp yeah um and also he can't be pushed which has the interesting side effect of he can't be trapped can you confuse this like squig like use confusion yes you you can confuse him yes okay it's good to know um it's interesting because i think very high level players uh will use the slag squig to their full advantage more often than not uh, because historically i've played aggressive warbands um whenever i'm playing a Moloch player they'll just keep slag squig in the back um but i really like the utility that you've explained here with regards to denying objectives because if you can slow down temporary victory or hidden purpose or even swift capture by one turn or one round that's such a huge advantage right yeah, it's a massive tempo swing. Um, and, like, if you... It, there's so much you can do with activations. Like, this game, we have 12 activations each. Activations are absolutely the most powerful resource in the whole game. And if you are just starting the game with your deployment, which almost costs you nothing, being able to waste one of your opponent's activations, that's a great, great resource to use. Yes, com completely, completely agree. Let's let's jump into two of the remaining fighters, the Bat Squig and the uh, Spy Trim. So we'll go with the bat squig first because uh, the bat squig is fantastic. Um, actually, you know what? The bat squigs, one of its greatest strengths is actually one of the most frustrating weaknesses for the warband. Um, so the bat squig um, ignores lethal hexes. And that means that for pretty much the duration of Molog being out as a warband, calculated risk hasn't been that good an objective for Molog's mob. Um, calculated risk obviously being one of the most powerful surges that's ever been in the game. Um, you do have two other fighters who can store it. Sorry, I should have said back when we we're talking about Stalagsquig. Stalagsquig also has a bunch of other special rules, like Stalagsquig can't move, Stalagsquig can't hold objectives. Um, generally speaking, you, you deploy Stalagsquig and then forget about Stalagsquig. Um, but yeah, Batsquig also can't hold objectives, but not being able to trigger calculated risk is frustrating. Outside of that, uh, the Batsquig does inspire to being able to do two damage on an attack which will catch people off guard, like kind of people who aren't used to um, the warband often completely forget about the squigs. And if, if say, Molog dies early, you can put great strength, you can put an accuracy upgrade on Batsquig, and you can have him charge and kill a reasonable fighter. It, it happens. Um, he's got a decent move. When inspired, Batsquig goes to five move. We've uninspired, it's four move, uh, which does frustratingly mean gathered momentum isn't quite reliable with the warband. Um, his also two dodge uninspired and three dodge inspired so it's actually quite difficult to connect with bat squig um, he's kind of the fighter that so with your squigs the spike shroom and the bat squig have to deploy normally um, on starting hexes um, the bat squig is the one you kind of want to aim a bit forwards kind of like lurking skaven because he has that two dodge characteristic it's less likely to be hit uh, so you kind of dangle him a little bit in front of spike shroom who's the one who's completely cowering at the back and when the bat squig inspires, um, you know you mentioned the two damage. 
that certainly does catch people off guard. Uh, what's his movement, and does his defense go up as well? Yeah, so he goes to three dodge, and his movement goes to five hexes. I believe it's uh, just, you know, I'm doing all of this from memory. I don't have uh, any of the stuff in front of me. No, right on. And, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm also trying to remember from memory, and I, and, and I remember the three dodge, but I wasn't sure about the five move. But it's um, it's actually a really cool like a tech piece as well, right? Because you mentioned that he can really cover <clears throat> a large like swath of distance pretty pretty quickly and to take an opponent's unawares because I've even had it to where, you know, you, you know, Mala goes down, but then you put great strength on the bat squig inspired. And then, you know, the bat squig is charging around the field doing three damage um, semi-reliably, which is pretty interesting. It's a nice backup option. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, he is, he, most people would consider the bat squig to be the second in command of the warband. If, if, if such a thing could be, uh, could be said of Moloch's mob. Right, right on. And the bat squig cannot hold objectives, correct? That is true. So just like the Stalag Squig, which I uh, should have mentioned, yeah, neither of these can hold objectives. And we'll, we'll get on to Spike Stream in a moment, but yeah, none of the Squigs can hold objective tokens. So something to just be completely aware of, like Molox Mob doesn't get to ever play um, a hold objective game plan. You literally can't score. Oh, no, hold on. It's technically not correct. You technically can score supremacy with this warband, but the amount of hoops you have to jump through to do it is kind of silly. Um, absolutely not reliable and absolutely not the type of game plan you want to be aiming for with Molog. Right. Is it is it like putting the upgrade that Salag Squid can hold an objective, holding an objective with Molog and then using Glorious Triumph to get that third one? Yeah, that's it. That's the only way I can think of to do it. Yeah. That is interesting. Let's jump into uh, Spite Shroom, or as some people like to call him, the Doom Shroom. Oh, Spite Shroom is beautiful. Spite Shroom is two movement. Um, and inspires to another two movement. So Spike Shroom, Spike Shroom is toddling along at the back. Um, one dodge base, two wound base. So kind of falls over to a stiff breeze. I believe like two wounds and one dodge is literally the weakest set of defensive stats like a starting fighter gets. Um, his base attack um, it only does one damage with two fury. Hilariously, and almost no one will know this who you're playing against, when Spike Shroom inspires, Spike Shroom actually has a scything attack. Um, and that scything attack does two damage. So I, I don't think it's ever really come up in a game because of Spike Shroom's two move. It's not like you can perfectly position your opponent's fighters and then charge across the board of a Spike Shroom. You can kind of hobble vaguely in their direction. But I would love to see a game where Spike Shroom hits a bunch of chain rasps and kill them. That would be That would be beautiful. You know, I've actually had that happen to me. Um, in my local meta, we had a guy who played Molog, and he would just line, like, Batsquig and Doomshroom on the front. And oh, so he'd no. charge with Molog. Maybe move with Molog, then charge, and then he'd charge with Batsquig and Doomshroom. And uh, I remember I couldn't kill Spiteshroom. And then when he inspired, um, he did do a scything attack. And although it didn't kill anyone, I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't know they could do that too, you know? So <laughs> yeah, the look on your opponent's face when oh, yeah, it was it was one of those moments where you hold your breath a little bit and like I hope this doesn't work. I think it's too fury, so it's not too yeah. accurate. But um, some lucky rolls or some upgrades can make that pretty interesting. It's it's actually quite fascinating when we take a step back and look at all of the the squigs. They've actually all got something very unique about them, mm-hmm. and it actually makes a player. Um, really think about how they want to utilize some of these fighters. And as you've mentioned more often than not, 
you know, you kind of lead the way with Malog and kind of keep them in the back. But I think there's some really cool utility that you can, like, like, like a, someone who really commits to the warband, such as yourself, can really find these niche scenarios that come up from time to time where you can fully utilize the power of those little critters. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and any, any, if you can start working that into your game plan, absolutely, there will be times where it wins you games. Yeah. I, there uh, is a sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say there's one one aspect of uh, the fighter cards that I haven't mentioned yet. Um, the inspire condition for the warband is entirely tied to Mog. Um, it's not a pleasant inspire condition, honestly. It's actually one of one one of the big weaknesses of the warband. It's very unreliable for you. Uh, when Mog has taken uh, well, has three wound counters on his uh, uh, sorry wound tokens on his fighter card. Um, you inspire Molog, and then all the squigs inspire as well. Um, key key thing to note here is just because Molog's inspired doesn't mean the squigs inspired. It has to be through those wound tokens that they inspire. Um, and obvious downside is you get to access the full power of your warband when Molog has about as much health as a Ripper or a Cursebreaker and is a lot more likely to die. So, yes, you do get these crazy inspired stats and this big troll, but it's tricky sometimes to access all that power. Right, right, and and so usually you can find ways to kind of circumvent that, right, through maybe Regal Vision or uh, Blazing Soul. Oh, absolutely, yes, absolutely. The ways that there are in the game to cheat out Inspiration are, are core to how you play Monologue. Right on, and then I, I think we may have missed this, but uh, Spite Room does have a reaction upon its demise. Oh, yes, no, and it's, it's quite nice. I mean, it just it's just does one damage, and specifically it does one damage to adjacent enemy fighters. So if it's adjacent to a Molog or a Bat Squig, you don't have to worry about triggering it. Um, honestly, I find, just, just because of how reactions work in this game, it's just nice to have a reaction on death because uh, there are times where you block your opponents like Glorious, Glorious Triumph and stuff like that. Um, the one damage is a nice uh, a nice icing on the cake, but Molog usually one-shots most fighters in the game anyway, so it's not it doesn't usually come up. Yeah, right on. So, uh, moving on, do you do we know that we know that you love Molog? He's your favorite fighter in the warband. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite squig? Ooh, it's. I want to say Bat Squig, but it's got to be Stalag Squig. Like, there's a lot of depth to Stalag Squig, and it's not just like like I said, the two tactics of like putting him on a token or putting him forward to help you get your first kill. Like, it it kind of feels like with the whole warband a lot of it feels like you're playing poker sometimes you know it's like i've got like a two pair and it's like sevens or something it's like i don't reckon anyone else in the table's got much i'm gonna and you just start raising and you're not necessarily wrong to do it you know you're forcing other people to have good stuff but it's a scary thing and if the dice don't come up your way like say for instance you do play stalag squig forwards and you you, you you roll two double supports or two fury on your attack it's just like well i've just given my opponent an advantage it's it's quite a it, it, it's not quite all in, but it, you're up in the stakes constantly when you play play like that. And I love that kind of aspect of the game. I love those decisions. Big reward, big uh, big fail state. So, yeah, Stalag Squig's definitely my second favorite. Right on. High risk, high reward. Mm -hmm. So, now that we've covered how the warband functions and the fighters individually, um, how would you describe this warband's strengths? Um, I would say... So, the warband's strengths are... For, because almost all of your upgrades are focusing on one fighter, um, you get kind of a lot of efficiency bonuses off them all kind of multiplying. 
So as an example, uh, Tome of Offerings is better on Molog than any other warband because the way Molog's mob is built is Molog is going to be doing all of your attacks. So in another warband like Magor's Fiends, you might trigger Tome of Offerings twice even if you've played it in the first round with Riptooth making some good attacks. It's not unreasonable in Molog's mob if you play Tome of Offerings in the first round to trigger it three or four times and to get a ton of extra glory out of it. So when you kind of put all these upgrades on one fighter, like especially like if you combine it with accuracy upgrades, with damage upgrades, it makes it it makes it so you start making your attacks so they almost automatically hit. I mean, if we look at the current state of the game, you can get Strength of Terror and you can get Molog's um, Warband upgrade, Foul Temper. If you have both of them on, then you have three smash with one reroll. Against most things, you would say that that's odds on to hit. You've got some of offerings on there as well. You're odds on to hit and you're farming a ton of glory. So the big, one of the biggest strengths of Moloch's Mob is just how the upgrades all synergize on one fighter. Um, another nice thing about Moloch's Mob, and this is going to sound crazy coming from me, man, but they, he acts as a hard counter to control. Interesting. Yeah, so like warbands that try to hide at the back, um, it's, you know, the full passive style, right? Like curse breakers um, type things. You can't hide from Moloch. Like he's like I said, he can move twice in the first round, and it requires so little investment for Moloch to get to four damage um, that he's very quickly um, one-shotting some of the best fighters in the game. Um, so like normally, control decks rely on having like a whole free first round to start doing their stuff. That doesn't happen versus Moloch. Uh, if you're in a if you're in a meta that's quite heavy on people hiding at the back, Moloch is one of the perfect answers to it. Especially because there's there's not much like runaway tech as there used to be. Mm, yeah, no, like uh, invisible walls and all that type of stuff's gone, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and hidden paths. Um, ah, yeah. And so when you are playing against control, are you just running up the board and smacking them, or are you trying to, like, do you hard mulligan for regal vision? What are you doing? So if I'm playing into control, I'm generally, so I will hard mulligan my objective deck, for, I mean, this is just, uh, to be honest, it's almost a general rule of Moloch. Because you don't generally try and run a high glory deck with Moloch. You generally play him with a low but consistent glory deck and then use the fact that Moloch's getting kills to supplement it. So you hard mulligan for a surge you can score. Something like Long Strider Burst of Speed would be fantastic. But Bold Conquest, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of them. Um, and then the Power Hand, you are looking for, yeah, Regal Vision would be beautiful. Um, but you're also just looking for uh, positional. Um, I think positional kind of um, ploys and gambits and also card draw if you built your deck that way are probably the best so like if you can say commanding stride up and then move um, then you are sitting next to them so even if you haven't inspired you are sitting next to them for about three activations worth of attacks um, they're going to die even if, even if a single attack of yours doesn't kill you just need to hit two out of three and something's died so I would go for positional positional ploys and potentially card draw because card draw just gets you everything. Right on. So you mentioned, you know, some of the strengths with Malog is, you know, lots of synergies with upgrades and tooling up one fighter, um, as well as kind of being a hard counter for control. What are some of the other strengths that Malog's mob has? Um, some of the other strengths, I, I he doesn't necessarily. Um, Right. He, he kind of relies more on kills to get his glory. 
Uh, no, let's let's put it this way. He can deny your opponent their key pieces, probably better than any other warband in the game. Let's go with that approach. So if your opponent has a key piece fighter, so for, say for, as an example, uh, Gristlewell. Um, sorry, no, not even Gristlewell. Let's go for the Duke. If they have the Duke, and like that's key to how the Grimwatch constantly recycle crypt ghouls, um, you can you can just walk up to him and kill him. Like other warbands, kind of the Duke's going to deploy at the back, away from most people's charge range. Um, the Molog will walk forwards, attack a couple of crypt ghouls on the way, maybe some bats, and then in his final act activation of the round, charge the Duke and potentially knock him into a lethal hex and kill him. Like there's almost nothing that your opponent can hide from you. You can surgically strike and kill whatever you want, which is great. Right on. So being able to eliminate key fighters very early on and strategically, um, as well as kind of not being able to hide from him, right? Those are more mm -hmm. strengths of Molog. Um, would you say that he's um, really good against uh, elite warbands as well? I think he's best into elite warbands, to be honest. Um, like, I haven't so I haven't practiced enough versus crushers to be conclusive, but early early signs of my playtesting show he's also good, even good into crushers. Like like saying he he doesn't need much investment to consistently dish out ridiculous amounts of damage. Like even if you don't inspire him, you can put great strength on him. He's got an infaction upgrade blooming spores, which is basically the same as great strength, and you can use glory seeker. And so even without um, inspiring him with those three, you're doing six damage. Crushers die to that. Um, obviously, curse breakers die to that. Rippers die to that. And that changes the dynamic of a lot of matchups. A lot of those kind of elite warband players are expecting to survive multiple hits, and their deck and their play, they just they just don't function that well when they go down in one hit, and that hit can happen again and again and again. They're just not they're just not ready for it. So I think he's perfect into elite warbands. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and I completely agree on the Crushers matchup as well. Um, Molog does take them down pretty efficiently. Um, and then even when you mentioned the sixth strength example, that's just Hrothkorn mm -hmm. too. You can technically yeah. take Hrothkorn out in one hit. Yeah. It's pretty neat. I, um, not for the Hrothkorn player. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, not for the Hrothkorn player. Um, okay, so we've talked about, you know, kind of what Molog does well. What are some things he struggles with? What are his weaknesses? He has one big weakness that can be kind of come out from multiple ways. But, I mean, look, his big weakness is if Molog dies. Look, we've, we've mentioned that the Squigs have their specific uses and they can surprise an opponent with how good they are. Realistically, if Molog dies, especially if he dies early in the game, you're out of that game. Um, it's, 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 it's absolutely kind of... Um, sometimes happens that he dies in the third round and you've got enough of a glory lead that you still win the game. But if he goes down early, you lose. And the big weakness is opponents who are aware of this and are willing or willing to make attacks constantly against Molog to whittle his wounds down. Um, that's, it, it, it sounds kind of obvious when you put it like that. But for a lot of decks and warbands that aren't kind of built around that, it's a lot easier said than done. So go back to like uh, um, go back to Wild Hunt again. Um, if you do have something like Brought to Bay or Strong Star in your opening hand, then why would you want to throw lots of attacks at Molog? Because all you're doing is not scoring your objectives, and surely scoring your objectives is kind of the most basic part of winning the game, right? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, what I would suggest is bin that starting hand, even though it's got two surges, which you'd normally say are some of your best surges, bin it, and basically just try and score any incidental glory you can 
otherwise make three or four charges at Molog, and he'll go down. Like, yeah, you're not doing a massive amount of damage, but usually with Wild Hunt, you have a little bit of ping. You know, you have, like, Snare or Unexpected Pitfall or something. Uh, sorry, um, Collapse, something like that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, and so three attacks hitting will kill Molog. Well, if your first two rounds, you devote to pretty much every fighter in your warband charging Molog, he will die, like, statistically. Like, obviously, there's the crazy game where the Molog just sits there, single crit defending everything. I'm sure, I'm sure, you've, I'm sure you've never seen a game like that, man. Oh, never. Never against you. <laughs> but yeah the, the way to play and to beat Molog and his big weakness is just opponents consistently attacking him early in the game if if, the, if 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 you see a Molog player start the game and they've taken two wounds in like the opponent's first activation the Molog player is sitting there already sweating they're already worried like I can say like if I've if I've if I, I'd even say if I've had three wounds down in my first round I feel worse than if I'm playing Curse Breakers and I've lost Rastus like for me I am much more on the slope of I could just quickly lose. If my opponent goes first in round two and does a, a combination attack to spike me, that's it. It's over. I've gone. So, yeah, absolutely his big weakness is just con constantly attacking him. Okay, so Mala can be focused, hyper-focused or singled out and taken down with consistent attention. Um, we've talked about the squigs being potentially a weak point, although you've made a very good point in that they have their individual strengths would you say that the squigs are a, a weakness as well to the warband yeah i mean right i would say the squigs are a weakness but if we compare to the kind of closest warband there is to monarchs mobs rothgorn's uh, man trappers rothgorn's man trappers has more of these kind of weak fighters and because they all have to deploy correctly with rothgorn he doesn't get a stalag squig to cheat it out um there's a lot easier access for aggro warbands to the backline of Rothgorn. Moloch's backline can be quite hidden away. Like I said, you're only deploying the Bat Squig and the Spike Shroom correctly. If you're not deploying Stalag Squig aggressively, you just might kind of make this little formation at the back that even a Curse Breaker player would be jealous of. Um, so it is a weakness, but it's very hard to actually exploit that weakness sometimes. Right, okay. That makes sense. Um one thing that I think Malag definitely needs and can struggle if he doesn't do this quickly is Inspire, right? Mm. So would you say that maybe not drawing into your, or his reliance rather on inspiring early uh, can be a weakness? Oh, absolutely. So obviously I know you want these, you know, you want this series to be as evergreen as possible. Um, in the history of Malag's Warband being released, we've had these universal kind of inspiration cards. So from Shadespar, we had Inspiration Strikes, which was the most beautiful, powerful, busted, however you want to describe it, uh, inspiration card ever. It was literally just a gambit that said Inspire a Fighter. Right. Um, then in Night Vault, we had the slightly toned down version, which is Regal Vision, where it required the fighter to be on an objective token. Um, and we also got an upgrade in Night Vault called Blazing Soul, which is Inspire Friendly Fighter. Uh, but obviously, because it's an upgrade, you have to have the glory out. Um, so the current climate we're talking about now in Beastgrave, Inspiration Strikes is gone. Only Regal Vision and Blazing Soul exist, but Blazing Soul is also restricted. Realistically, you could run you could run both. It's a bit of a it's restricted. Well, I'm sure we'll get onto this later. Restricted slots are very very heavily contested for Molog. Um, 
absolutely 100% you always run Regal Vision. Um, you have to try, if you can cheat out that awkward inspire condition, you desperately, desperately want to. I, I, I've said, like, if I'm going into round two with three runs down on Molog, I'm sweating. It's 100%. Like, you, re you really don't want to, to be taking wounds on him to inspire him and access all that power. So you always take Regal Vision. Um, Blazing Soul is debatable. I think it depends a bit on your meta. There's a bit of a meta call there. I'll, I'll get into that later. Um, I don't know in the future if we're still going to have any of these inspiration cards. I've noticed that we haven't really had any in Beast Grave, right? So whether or not we'll get them in the fourth season is a big question mark. And it's a big question mark on kind of the viability of Moloch going forwards because if he has to rely on taking damage as a fighter to inspire, he might fall off quite a bit. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, he could, but he also fundamentally just wins certain matchups. So mm. he might be able to kind of stay in the ring. He may not be as efficient early game, but that is an interesting thought. Maybe. So do you think he relies on that, those Inspire cards too much? Hmm. It's... <sighs> It's it's a really tricky one because we've been there. There's been times uh, during the um, dur during Molog's release where he's been too strong. Um, I, I think it was towards the end of Night Vault with uh, the the crazy troll tomes deck. Like he was probably yeah he was too strong at that point. He could pretty much play whatever type of game he wanted, and it was very hard for the opponents to deal with it. Um, right now, I actually think at this point in Beastgrave, he's fairly balanced. Like. At, at top level play, um, he's he's a strong contender in a in an expert's hand, but he relies on dice. And as we all know, and anyone who plays aggro going into a big tournament knows those dice will desert you at times. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely so. so. I, I, I I I'm not sure if he. I don't know. It's tr it's tricky to say about his reliance on inspiration cards. They are absolutely ridiculously powerful on him and they're more powerful on him than on any other warband but just because of his kind of unique way of being a fighter that cares a warband that cares almost all about one fighter it's possible we get other mechanics that benefit Molog more than others you know right that makes a lot of sense mm. so considering everything that is good for Molog and uh, maybe difficult for him to overcome and his warband what strategies or playstyles does this warband find successful, right? We've mentioned tomes in the past. We've mentioned hard aggro a couple times. Um, are there are there alternate ways to play him as well? Like, what are some ways to run Molog in general? So, I'll just start by reiterating: don't try and as a hold objective warband. Um, yes, there's an upgrade for Static Squid that lets him hold objectives, and yes, Glorious Triumph exists, but you're talking about like aligning all the special unicorns. Like It's not happening. Don't rely on it. Um, I would say there's two kind of almost diametrically opposed main ways to play Moloch, and I, I, I really enjoy playing both of them. Um, there's the full aggro method, where you take almost every single card in your deck is based around either making Moloch more accurate, uh, positioning Moloch so you can get more attacks, or pretty much just positioning your opponent so you can hit them more. Um, so occasionally there's some other kind of spicy cards like Regal Vision, but it's all about Molog deploys as close to the enemy fighters as possible, sometimes being able to make an attack straight away. Um, and yeah, maximizing attack. So you attack three or four times in the round if possible. Commanding Stride is absolutely beautiful for this. Um, 
and you you try and beat them like you, you use your giant club and you, you you destroy them as much as you can like you use the fact that you have all these stats and you have this power early in the game before other people kind of get the upgrades and they've got their stats and you, you try and destroy them and farm glory from kills it's a very solid way of playing Molog and I think like I, I, I don't think it's ever going to be ever going to be bad right I don't think I don't think Molog can ever fall completely out of grace even if like say inspiration cards and stuff go this way of playing Molog you're not going to get a top player who sees that troll across from him and isn't a bit scared you know if those yeah. dice if those dice run hot on Molog that's it like if he if he hits two big attacks, boom, you, you've lost. So that kind of aggressive playstyle for Moloch is always going to exist. I will say, it's trickier at the high level to win to big tournaments with that style of playing Moloch because conversely, when you rely on dice, sometimes they desert you, as we said earlier. And in a big run at like a grand clash, you have to win so many rounds. There is reasonable odds that in one of those rounds, you you just have a couple of bad games with dice. Um, the the aggro that that can be somewhat mitigated if we have strong kind of um reusable um accuracy upgrades so like I, i've mentioned in the past um we currently have strength of terror and uh in the beast grave meta and in Molog's own warband cards we have foul temper those two combined actually start to make his attacks really really accurate so if, if if you get more of them, or if you have a similar meta with those type of accuracy upgrades, then honestly, you don't have to be quite as panicking about kind of trying to hit everything on two smash, and the aggro the aggro build gets a lot better. That makes sense. Do you? So what you're saying is positioning with Molog is of the utmost importance. So oh, absolutely. Sidesteps, maybe distractions, commanding stride, cards. Either those cards or cards that function similar to those cards are paramount when building a deck with Molog. Mm -hmm. um, one of the great ones that I've often used in the past is uh, Center of Attention. And, you know, we're talking about ways you can deploy the Stalag Squig and mess people up. Stalag Squig deployed in an odd space people won't expect. And then you use Center of Attention and you line your opponents up for, like, a fantastic early scything attack or something. Yeah. Right on. So, po so positional stuff like that is great for Molog. And, and would you say that you know, maybe, like, do you think tomes work for him now? Oh, so, um, so, we've uh, uh, yeah, talked a bit about the aggro playstyle there. Let's go, let's just go into the other way you can play Moloch, the kind of hiding at the back control method. Um, so, um, the way this works is the fact is based on two facts. One, Moloch is a seven-wound fighter, and if you're going to be kind of stacking um, upgrades on a fighter that score you big at the end of the game, so... Acolyte of the Cataphranes is an objective where you get one glory per Cataphrane Tome on a fighter. You put loads of Cataphrane Tomes on Moloch, you're going to get a load of glory off Moloch at the end of the game because it's hard to kill him. Um, and it combines that with the fact that Moloch has access to two very powerful uh, universal surges, um, Long Strider and Burst of Speed, um, that almost no one else can use slash abuse in the way that he can. Um, so for reference, Burst of Speed and Long Strider are a surge you score for a single fighter making their second movement, or I think it's just their second movement in a round. It doesn't ch separate from charge, because charge is just a move and attack, isn't it? Yeah. Um, all you have to do with that with Molog is literally just shuffle around at the back, and you'll get those surges. Um, if you can combine, if you can fill out your deck with some of the other surges that kind of work like that, so right now we have stuff like Frantic Exchange, there's stuff like Shortcut, those type of things, you can generate enough passive glory to then get the upgrades on for tomes 
and kind of you don't you don't have the biggest glory scoring games ever right you're probably talking at best like 12 glory or something like that but you know it's solid and if your opponent is trying to play aggro it's very hard for them to get any glory because you're all at the back and hard to kill um if your opponent's playing hard, hold objectives so you can put a lot of disruption in there you can put stuff like mischievous spirits distraction uh maybe even restless prize if you can fit it in that type of stuff um it it right now in the current Beastgrave meta, I don't think Tomes Molog is that good. Um, very simple reason is you need to take long stride and burst of speed. They're absolutely essential, incredible surges for Molog. Um, and if you do that, then your third restricted slot would be Acolyte of the Cataphranes, because it's a restricted card. You then don't have any space for any other restricted cards. And that means you can't take Tome of Vitality because it's restricted. You can't take Tome of Offerings because it's restricted. Uh, one of the Tomes you can't take because you're not a wizard. It requires you to be a wizard. I think that means you can only actually take four Tomes. Something like that. Oh, because Vitality is... Restricted. Restricted, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could... And actually, this is another one of the weaknesses of Molog that I wanted to point out. And then I guess mm -hmm. we got caught up is... Now that we're talking about restricted cards, he's actually really starved on like kind of leaving out of his core group of cards that he grabs, right? Like Burst of Speed and Longstrider are both mostly auto-includes, and then at that point you only have one card, and it's probably Tome of Offerings, right? Yeah, no, honestly, straight up, absolutely. It's 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 weird It's weird because obviously you could argue one of his strengths is that Longstrider and Burst of Speed are so good on him, but because they're so good on him, you can't take anything else. There's nothing else that competes with it. The only, the only type of um, Molog build, I'd say that can just about technically drop one of them is like the aggro molo build and like you can take stuff like strong start and like kind of kill objectives but it's a you're leaning even like i know you know i saying i enjoy high risk high reward but there's a point at which it gets silly like if if you can't score any glory off your first turn if you miss your attacks then you're gonna lose a bunch of games where you've just had bad dice just on one round you need to at least reliably get a glory in your first uh, round to equip upgrades and from automatically getting it from moving around is 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 a pretty good way of doing that so yeah they always have to take those two the third slot is debated uh term of offerings is probably the biggest option but uh blazing soul is also another really tasty option do you think um the avatar risen is decent with Malog? I do. I so the avatar is like kind of like an alternative to the term strategy, but it's very similar. It's uh, the avatar is is a three glory objective. You can score in any end phase. It doesn't have to be the third end phase, like uh, acolyte of the cataphranes. It requires only three upgrades, but it requires three specific upgrades, and that's all the different avatar things. So I think it's mandibles, sting, and claws of the Urgrip. And when you assemble them all, you get you get not exodia, but close to it. You get uh, avatar of the Urgrip. Um it's interesting. I have I'm prepping currently for a, uh, for an online tournament that's happening this weekend. I think it's probably probably before this episode goes out. Pardon? What was the question? So I'm prepping for an online tournament that I think is happening before this episode goes out. That's or right. After. It's yeah. no. It's 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 yeah. You're, this episode will drop after the online tournament. Gotcha. So we'll know people. People will know right away if I if, if if my musings are good or not. But I spent a lot of time prepping a Molog deck, and I've kind of gone for what I think is the best of both worlds. It's got a lot of control elements in it, but it's also got a lot of aggro elements in it. It's trying to score passively, but 
be able to kill and get as much glory from kills as possible. It's got Term of Offerings in there. It's got Strength of Terror, like I've said, those type of things. Um, I experimented heavily with Avatar, uh, the Avatar Risen. And up until the last few days, it's been in my deck because it has been very good and it's been very strong and it's been great. But I've had enough games where it bricks my hand and I can't reliably either get the components in time or it just being in my objective hand early has met, ruined my game. So I've ended up dropping it. Uh, I've actually ended up replacing it with To The End. Uh, to The End is slightly slightly less exciting on glory. It usually happens in the third end phase, but it does have the lovely advantage of it can happen when Moloch dies, which can often catch a lot of people off guard. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess you don't put it with Moloch or you don't think it's worth it? or I, th I think it's a tough call. I think it's absolutely an excellent option for him. And I, I might even be wrong, right? I might not have played enough to say conclusive. I've definitely not played enough to say conclusively if it's right or wrong. My current leaning is I don't think it's quite worth it on Moloch. Or at least the way that I've built this Moloch deck. Um, I Like I said, I, I have gone a kind of control slash aggro kind of flex thing. I think if you're going full control, if your whole plan was built around hiding at the back, then absolutely Avatar would be worth it. Right on. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, well, let's jump into some of the faction-specific cards that are really good with Molog's Mob. Um, if you could maybe name like three to four of them that you think are really reliable and, and people should really kind of never ho leave home without. Okay, so I'm going for the first one. Th this is actually my favorite one, Foul Temper. Absolutely the Foul Temper. So uh, for those of us who played back in the Shadespire days, this is kind of like Awakened Weapon. Um, it's not restricted to Molochs. This can go on your squigs, and it lets you reroll an attack dice. Um, not quite as good as adding an attack dice, but in most situations it's practically identical. Um, and honestly, repeatable accuracy on Moloch is the best thing ever. If you're making multiple attacks, this is this is this is your gold standard upgrade that you always want on Moloch. Absolutely love Foul Temper. It starts like even your opponents like if you if your opponents like if you hit a couple of just two two smash attacks in a row, they're like, come on, mate, you're getting a bit lucky. As soon as you've got Foul Temper, on, they're like, ah, yeah, no, they're all odds on. It's not that bad. Right. Um, so yeah, love Foul Temper. It's brilliant. Probably my second one, and this is going to sound a little bit unexciting, but there's a lot you can do with it. Predatory Growls. Um, it's a faction copy of uh, Distraction, and it means that you can functionally run two distractions with Molog. Um, and distra Distraction's absolutely nuts. Like, I, I, I don't need to, I don't need to sell you on Distraction, do I, dude? No, no. I, I argue. I think it's arguably one of the best cards ever made. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's crazy to like. Um, it, it's crazy because it, when you're new to the game, just a single push on an uh, enemy fighter one hex doesn't sound much at all. But when you when you really get there, like I would say, like over other warbands, even it might be better um, on Molog just because of the ability to. So you're you're, you're trying to trap people uh, on edge hexes for to increase the accuracy of your attacks, and also pushing people just into range of Molog, so you get another attack without having to charge him. Fantastic! Like it's it's absolutely nuts on Molog. Right um, third card I would pick would probably be Blooming Spores. Um, it's a great strength copy. Um, this one only affects Moloch, so you can't put this one on the bat squig. Um, but it means that you can take two copies of great strength. Um, not only works on your big kind of range two attack, but also works on your scything attack. And once you've got one or two of these on, I, I've definitely had it in games where I've killed two rippers with a charge, and they've been like, oh yeah, your scything attack does four damage. GG. 
Um, so love it. Love love the extra reliability in your deck of having multiple of them and love being able to stack them. Right on. Yeah, the scything attack is nuts. The, that example right there would would crush my soul. I, I it's a good job our practice games are always balanced on dice. Very much so. Um, I'm going to really struggle for a fourth card, you know. So those are the three that I pretty much always take in a Molag deck. Not not necessarily always, but almost always, like 95% of the time. But then there's a big drop-off. And I'm going to be honest, like, I could say a card, right? There's a couple of cards here that I'd probably say are technically fourth. But none of them are really worth talking about. None of them are actually going to see play. The only time you're going to really use the other cards in a Molag deck are if you're playing in a Grand Alliance tournament and you're in a very specific kind of stretch for cards type of sense or if you're right at the beginning of a season and there's a bit of a smaller card pool so you're really looking for anything that's viable if you're in those situations i'd probably go with um there is i can't remember the name of it i think he he has a ploy which is essentially a copy of determined effort that's probably what i'd go with oh plus one dice on an attack yes yes uh oh brutal savagery there's the one brutal savagery yeah, I can see that one. I guess if you're, if you're if you if you're struggling with maybe like a blood scent or, or haymakers, someone else took those cards, then you probably don't even need blood scent with Malog. But uh, yeah, I can see that for sure. Cool. Um, so let's jump into universals, right? So we've we've talked about you know burst of speed and and um, what's the other one, long strider. Yeah. And so you know those cards are rotating out in a couple months. So. I guess when we're talking about universal cards, what are some general examples of cards that you want? Um, I understand that you know positioning and, and accuracy and strength is really important. Are you looking to emulate those same benefits through the universal cards, or are there some other things you're looking for as well? Uh, I'm absolutely looking for accuracy. Absolutely. Uh, above anything else. Like I will, I will sacrifice a goat for accuracy if I can, oh man. Um, <laughs> so... I am. I am. I, Strength of Terror in Beastgrave is my happy place. Back in Shadespire, um, the equivalent would be Light Armor. That was the one that gave you an extra dice, um, but your defense dice no longer could crit. Mm-hmm. I didn't care. Defense dice, yeah, your Molog. Who cares? You're trying to kill everything. Not none of this defending. Um, so accuracy, especially repeatable accuracy. So it's important to make the distinction because Potion of Rage is a great card, and I've often run it in Molog decks. But it's one attack. You're going to be making, like, you should be making two or three attacks, like, most rounds. Like, anything that can happen multiple times is what you're looking for there. Um, we've already mentioned, like you said, strength upgrades are great. So extra damage stuff like Great Strength, Glory Seeker, they're, they're fantastic. Re- reasonably, you want those ones to work on range two attacks, not just range one. Sting of the Urgrub is a bit of a pain. Um, it's, it, you only really take Sting of the Urgrub, in my opinion, if you're, if you're running the Avatar Risen. Because otherwise, it's only going to trigger in your scything attack and not your other, uh, your range two attacks. Not quite worth it. Um, universal cards that are also fantastic, as we've already mentioned, inspiration cards. If if anything else comes out, cheat the inspiration mechanic straight in the monologue deck. Don't even ask about it. Don't even question it. Just when you see it, know that you can have a big grin on your face as your opponent has kind of going, ha, they can only charge once. I can plan my turnarounds. So what you do is you charge, and then you play this card, and you start laughing like a madman. Don't, don't actually do this. You, you won't have <laughs> Um Right on. So in addition to accuracy, prioritizing that, as well as um, movement, you are also looking for inspiration cards, if possible. Yes. Absolutely. Um, right on. 
And then there's a third one that we've not spoken about yet, uh, survivability. So you have one fighter that if he dies, your warband goes down. Um, extra wounds or damage reduction are absolutely essential for Molog. And also, I mean, so this doesn't currently exist in the meta, but it has existed in the past. Healing. If you can, if healing potion existed in this game right now, I'd be taking healing potion almost all the time with Moloch. Um, if you, if you, you know, it always gives you one wound back, and on a 50-50 it does two wounds. Two wounds is often like someone's full attack, and you've just completely negated it. Um, so anything that kind of, so with with a lot of games with Moloch, when you're playing at a high level, we were saying like you know people focus him down and try and kill him and stack the damage on it. You get this kind of tug of war kind of mentality where you're trying to stack the defensive upgrades and the protective stuff while killing them and they're just going to stack these wounds on you to kill you and the more that you can kind of tug back against them with stuff uh, that makes it just that little bit harder to kill him the more chance you have of winning because it doesn't matter if they get Molog 95% dead they have to get him 100% dead so survivability healing absolutely brilliant on him very good point yeah survivability huge Huge when you're investing so much into one fighter. Um, so now that we've talked about what kind of cards that the Warband wants, um, let's briefly talk about their preferred matchup. So you've mentioned they're great against control and they're great against elite Warbands. Um, what are some other matchups that you would want to see when playing Molog's Mob? Ooh, so yeah, we love elite Warbands, we love control. Um, I... Hmm... I don't know if there is another if there is another matchup I intrinsically like to see, or at least not one that um, is like a main one. So other warbands, other archetypes that exist are probably aggro and, um, and hold objective. Yeah, um, oh, oh, there is one subset of aggro actually that you're fairly happy to fight against. Um, you're fairly happy to fight against surgical aggro. Um, if they're if you're playing against an opponent's warband where Say, say for instance, you're playing against Spike Claw Swarm, and it's a Spike Claw Swarm player that's that's basically all in on Scritch. Um, you just go and kill Scritch. Like Scritch can't. We've said that you know Molog is one of the best fighters in the game at being able to kill a priority target, and you can absolutely do that. But if it's more dispersed threats, um, if like you know they've got the upgrades and the kind of way of playing where any of their fighters can start pumping out a lot of damage onto Molog. Nope, you're not happy about that because suddenly you've walked into kind of a hornet's nest and they will take you down. Um, so I would say, yeah, just the ones we talked about earlier. Elite elite warbands, control warbands, and this little extra one of surgical war, uh, aggro. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so let's look at the other side of the coin then. What are the ones that you kind of like dread when you match up with the, across from them on the table? So my absolute most hated matchups are distributed aggro. So um, what I'm talking about when I say this is so, um, the, uh, probably the epitome of that playstyle is God's One Hunt. Um, I played a lot against God's One Hunt back in Night Vault. I was practicing into Tom a lot, mm -hmm. and pretty much every fighter. And I'm not. I, I'm actually. You know what? I mean every fighter because I've had enough games where Grawl killed Moloch with concealed weapon. Every fighter in that warband can pump, pump out stupid amounts of damage. And you think, hey, I've just killed Shond, or I've just killed Grundon. Hey, this is like a big good start. You know, this is a great start for me. And then Threader just charges you and does four damage. And you're like, oh, I'm practically dead. Um, distributed aggro where every single one of their fighters can charge and be a threat. And you can't predict which one's a threat beforehand is a nightmare for you. Um, to a lesser extent, so this is this is not as bad a matchup, but it's still not as far from ideal, are hold objective horde warbands. Um, 
Thorns and Gits probably epitomize this playstyle the most. And they will score a lot of glory. Um, just from kind of just from their action efficiency and grab going around the place. Especially with the kind of surge objectives that we have in Beastgrave. Um, but because those because of the nature of those decks, if they flex into aggro at all, they're exactly the type of aggro that you find very difficult to deal with. Where they can pick any fighter they want and have them do a fair amount of damage to you. Like I've practiced a lot into Jimmy's Gits and it's a bit of a nightmare when a squig charges you for four damage with cleave and you're just like it doesn't matter if I kill you beforehand because you just attack me with the other squig. Or if I prioritize Drew's Git to kill you, then you're inspired and they're better. Like you, you can't almost pick a target to go for. You, 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 it's almost like the opposite of going for the surgical aggro. There are no key targets. Everything's a threat. And they score a lot of glory. Um, the one thing that keeps you in that matchup and keeps you uh, with a chance to win is is Tome of Offerings. If you get an early Tome of Offerings draw, then suddenly the amount of glory you can churn through by killing all those fighters makes that um, makes that matchup a lot better for you. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, is interesting because those warbands are very popular in the current meta. So curious to see um, kind of what you do to what tricks you have up your sleeve to uh, neutralize some of those threats. It's rolling crits. <laughs> when in doubt, roll crits. Um, okay, so what about you know your board setup? What's your preferred board setup? Um, does it vary from match to match, or is it generally the same thing? Earlier you alluded that generally you just stick Molog in the front and kind of say go, um, so, but you know how does it vary? It, no, actually, it massively varies. You've got so many options. It does depend on how you build Molog, right? If you're building Molog, the aggro style, the all-in aggro style, you, you, you pretty much always put him right up front. You try and set the boards up in a way where you can actually deploy in range of attacking one of their fighters, you know, if they're a warband that takes up every starting hex. And your whole game plan is built around attacking at every activation. Um, so you just you don't want there to be any distance. You don't want to have to make a move with Molog that doesn't result in an attack if possible. Um, if you're playing control Molog, you have the opposite. You're trying to generate as much distance between you and your opponent as possible. You do stuff like full offset Molten Shard Pit. If you're playing the deck that I have currently, and honestly, I've kind of experimented with these Molog decks a lot in the past, where you're kind of like a mix between the two, where you kind of generate passive glory, but you're also very happy to kind of go aggressive. And again, in some matches, you have to, because your passive glory won't meet like hold objective stuff. It depends. Um, you kind of have to make a judgment call on how much glory they're going to score, on how much of an early game threat they are to you, um, and use that to kind of tune how far aggressive and how far defensive you want to be. I usually find that in like a best of three, on games two or three, you default to, I've decided that I am control, or I've decided that I am aggro, and you go full in on one of those. But in game one, where you're not entirely sure how your opponent's warband scores, you kind of pick like a neutral warband, and you kind of put more kind of in the middle, so you're kind of ready to go either way, and depending on what your opponent kind of starts to do. That makes sense. Um, are you ever, Are you ever wanting three objectives? Um, yes, so you don't want them for yourself, but if you take three objectives and your opponent can't have them. So into Gits and Thorns, it's great because then they're forced to come to you. You know, we're saying about how it's great to deploy and be able to attack them as much as possible. Well, if they have to come to you one by one, especially if they're trying to rely on the Varklav push, which means they're going to be sending one of their weaker fighters forwards, which you can always one-shot, that's a great position for you to be in. It also means that they can't get temporary victory as easily in their first activation. 
So yeah, no, against those warbands, against, against hold objective warbands in general, you want to take three tokens. What's your like worst board setup? Like what are you, what is that getting long boarded or is it like max offset with the molten shard pit? So um, uh, I played an aggro monologue against uh, Benny in finals of an online tournament a bit ago. And he was playing a full control Hrothkorn and he molten shard pitted me. That was a horrible setup. And realistically, once he'd made those board choices, which was absolutely the correct thing to do, I gave myself like a 10% chance to win that game, right? I was going to have to create every roll, that type of crazy thing. Um, but conversely, if I'm playing a control monologue, sometimes I want to do that. I, honestly, it really does depend. Um, I would say for my current deck, because this is going to come out after the tournament, so I'm willing to say this, my, if for my current deck, the worst I can have is if my opponent gets boards and they pick... Well, we've already mentioned it being the most broken board in the game, but you know Morton Shard pick can also be used very aggressively. You can put three fighters yeah. up front. They pick that, and they put, like, say, three Wild Hunt fighters up front or three Godsworn up front, and I'm just staring down the barrel of all these seeking missiles. That is that is not a pleasant situation for me to be in. Right on. Right on. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And then at that point, it's just dice, right? Yeah, honestly. it's it's. I would say at that point, it's dice, and they're, but they're slightly rigged against you. Right, because Molog only has one block. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, so we've talked about, you know, strengths, weaknesses, matchups, board setups, um, and deployment. Um, to round out the Warband questions, um, what are some things for new players to keep in mind when they're maybe playing Molog's Mob for the first time or even wanting to get into it? Um, you know, in the past, Molog has caused... A lot of noise when it comes to um, um, his ability to kind of almost you know be a noob stomper for lack of a better term and so if someone wants to get into this game when they're interested in what Molog looks like and you know what he's able to do what are some recommendations that you make to not only pilot him successfully but also to help create a great environment to play in as well so one thing I would say is if you're starting the game in a kind of mature scene or a scene that's been around for a bit, you shouldn't have to stress too much about the fact that Mother could be a noob stomper. You're playing into experienced players. Play play what the, what the heck you want to play and, and enjoy the game and learn from there. But if you are starting with a group of people who are also new, that's when... Moloch's kind of dangerous kind of aspects become a bit apparent. So yeah, I, you're right. He's a bit of a noob stomper. When people are learning the game, the idea that a fighter can ignore a charge token will actually really annoy people. Like people are learning, this is what this thing does, and I can play around it, and that's my expectations. And suddenly there's one fighter that can't. It almost feels like someone's played the Uno reversal card. You know, like oh no, <laughs> I, I I get to do this thing. Deal with it. And it can feel very unfair for those players. Um, and you've not only got that, but you've also got static squig breaking deployment rules. So if you are with a whole new group of players, I personally would actually advise to avoid Molog. The only maybe exception to that is if, say, for instance, there's someone in the group who is not kind of as good as the rest of you. You know, you, you, you likely played other games with these people before, right? You kind of have an idea of their overall skill levels. If there's someone who's maybe not as good as the rest of you, and they don't know what to play, maybe you can suggest they play Molog. Maybe they get a bit of a handicap, and maybe they'll enjoy that, because part of... Like I've said there's a lot of depth to Molog, but also, when you're just learning, the fact that he can kind of break the rules in that way is actually quite liberating for people. So he can be a useful warband as kind of training wheels for the game as well. 
Right on. And so, um, let's say someone's like, okay, I like Molog. You know, I've played practice with him and I want to start playing competitively. You know, what are your top three tips for that person? Oh, so um, this is going to sound weird because this isn't not set, not necessarily something you have much control over, but it's, it's just something I wanted to make sure was in the episode. Molog is always much stronger at the end of a season than at the beginning of a season. Um, you, we mentioned earlier that I could only really pick three of his cards, warband cards that were actually legitimately good. That means that when we've got a smaller card pool at the beginning of a season, he's he's just not as good. A lot of a lot of warbands have powerful cards, and they get to take more of them. Molog doesn't get that. So if you are looking to play Molog competitively, I would like this time in Beastgrave. He's probably at the best he's ever been in Beastgrave. This time is a great time to play him. But if you're at the beginning of a season and you're looking to be competitive, especially if you're even even a moderately experienced player, I'd probably steer clear. You have to be a full-on like loyalist warband kind of veteran to want to be playing Molog at the beginning. Like the beginning of Beastgrave was rough for the poor boy. I don't know if you remember practicing most of me, but I was trying to do everything. I was trying to like give him hunter upgrades, to give him trophy belt. It it, it wasn't pretty. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after that, uh, tips for Molog. Um, I tip for people getting into it. I think so. This is more of a general tip, but it's it's very. Maybe it's actually more important with Molog than other warbands just because of his unique style of play. Practice into lots of things. So I've mentioned, you know, we were talking about a lot of matchups there and all the different kind of subtypes and kind of ways that decks are built. Try against them all and try, try in your practice games thinking through what would have happened if you had placed stuff like the Stalag Squid differently. Because you can often fall into the trap of defaulting to always placing them at the back. Um, Try the games where you place them aggressively. You'll quickly learn stuff like, oh god, don't do that versus Harrows. They get to inspire for free and they're very happy about that. But you won't learn it until you do it, right? Or you'll forget about it unless it's gone badly for you. So I would absolutely try against a big, as big a breadth of warbands as you can possibly try against. Um, right on. Third tip, ooh, um, for Molog, I'm not sure. Um, I think I kind of, I think I've covered a lot of my general approach to stuff with him. Um, I can't think of any specific tips. I suppose one thing I would say is just make sure you're trying to trap your opponents as much as possible. I've, I've probably bashed about it a lot in this episode, but seriously, like the odds go up. Some, it's something like 10 or 15% versus the average defense dice, which is crazy. Like that That's almost as much as getting a free determined effort on your attack, which is it's a, car, a power card that's legit to put in your deck. Um, try and practice lining your opponents up so that they are trapped against walls or as you're moving around with your attacks one of your later ones will end up being against an opponent that's trapped like for, if you miss an attack against an opponent but like you've both rolled successes drive their fighter back in a way that your next attack can be against something that's trapped something like that right yeah trapped is huge and and we did mention it but i i think the emphasis is really good there because it's one of the best ways to interact with an opponent in your favor Absolutely, and it's all based on board positioning, which is kind of cool part of the game that they they get introduced with as well. Yeah, and something that Molog is trying to manipulate as much as he can. Mm-hmm. Right Absolutely. on, right on. Well, that concludes all the questions for Molog's mob. But I think again, you did a wonderful job, kind of highlighting, you know, the goods, the highs, the lows, everything really about Molog. So appreciate your uh, your willingness to share there. I want to jump into the rapid fire questions. I know you've done these before. But maybe some of your answers have changed since the, uh, when you did the Steel Hearts episode. So um, we'll run through these really quickly. 
Um, but um, I guess you probably know the answer to the first one, but uh, I guess for cohesiveness sake, who is your favorite fighter in the game? Oh, it's obviously Snurk, right? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, Mo- it's Moloch, it's Moloch. Awesome, awesome. Favorite Warband to play? Uh, yeah, it's Moloch's Mob again. Right on. Um, if you could bring back any card from Season 1 back to Championship format, what would it be? So, I've been contemplating this a lot, actually, because I, 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 th- I don't know if I said this last time, but it's got to be it. I love Illusory Fighter so much. Maybe it would have to be restricted because it is so good, but I just love the card. Um, the close contender for that would be Hidden Paths. I also love Hidden Paths. Yeah, I think you, I think you may have said Illusory Fighter last time, but um, it, it's, it's, it's a great card. You're absolutely mm. correct. Um, I think that... Hidden Paths, maybe Inspiration Strikes. Those are all great for Molog, for sure. It's, inspiration Strikes is difficult for me to say of a straight face because it's a bit crazy. <laughs> I can actually hear the amusement in your voice. So. Yeah. Um, so I know that you don't necessarily get into the hobby side of things. Is there a favorite model that you like? Um, it doesn't ha- like just from an aesthetic point of view. Um, hmm. I do think that the the models have generally been getting better. Like, stuff kind of looks uh, more interesting as the seasons have gone on. But counter to that, actually, probably my favorite model is Scritch. I kind of really like his pose with the spear kind of behind his back, and he's kind of standing in stride, that stuff. Yeah, I think Scritch is probably my favorite model. He's kind of pulling a Batman, right, where he's, like, overlooking, like, his prey before he comes down and Batmans them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really like Scritch. Yeah. It, the, 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 yeah, that pose looks fantastic. Yeah. yeah quite, quite dynamic, for yeah. sure. Um, who's your least favorite fighter in the game? So I know that last time I said Snurk. Um, I almost feel like I should use this time to say another fighter that I dislike, but I don't know if anything can compare with Snurk. Um, is there anything that compares with Snurk? Um, hmm, nope, it's Snurk. Right on. Yeah. And do you elaborate why? Just in um, a sentence, maybe? He's... Uh, right, trying to deal with how his pushes interact with stuff like mirror move or fighters that can't be pushed or like interruptions during his push and the faqs and i I do realize that right now technically if you are at like understanding the faq it is very clear but like you have to be pretty good at the game or like pretty knowledgeable about the game to be at that level i think for a lot of players it's quite confusing how the nuances of snurk actually works and that, that just frustrates me to be honest yeah, that makes sense. Bit of a rules conundrum. Mm. Um, is there any type of warband that you would like to see in the future? Maybe mechanically, um, aesthetically, or model count, or anything like that? Right, I'm going to change what I said last time, because I'm pretty sure I said HeroQuest last time. My cra- my crazy idea this time, I want a warband that is all um, like Chaos Cultists or Chaos Sorcerers, and the whole mechanic is about them summoning a greater demon down. And then, so like, in a way, it'd be kind of like a Molog deck, like you've got this one fighter, but you don't start the game with that fighter and you have to do something, like fulfill some condition to actually be able to get the fighter out in the first place. Ooh, that's actually really neat. I'd have like all the courtists have like rubbish stats as well, so there'd be like two wounds, one dodge, and like two move or something. Uh, maybe maybe um, the way you get the demon now is like their inspire condition is something like, five of them survive the first round or three of them survive the second round, something like that. And when they inspire, they summon the greater demon, something like that. It would be interesting if, 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 if actually their death summoned the demon, right? Ooh. Cause you need some sort of blood sacrifice. So like, is it worth killing your opponent to summon the demon or you can maybe just fulfill your own, you know, 
maybe they can just beat you without summoning him. That, that that'd be a thing that'd be really cool. That would be really cool, and then you could keep them with two moves, so it's hard for them to suicide through lethal hexes. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, I I think I think uh, GW, if you're listening, cool ideas. I want my bloodthirster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you and uh, you and Derek Derek yeah, Trakwar from uh, Matt, uh, Captain Murder from Canada. Yeah. He he made a Hrothgorn warband, but uses a bloodthirster for Hrothgorn. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's uh, cool. he's also someone I uh, missed seeing Nova. I think he was planning on going. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you mentioned that you're running a blog and you're part of a podcast. Um, but you know, last plug for you. Um, you know, if people want to hear more from you, where can they hear more your thoughts and maybe have a conversation with you as well? So, absolutely, Steel City Underworlds is uh, the blog, and that's like that's my main project, right? But um, the people I do stuff with is mostly Tom Bond, and we run a podcast together uh, called Chatting Crit, and we also put a lot of ourselves into that. That's most that is mostly Tom's project, but I also you know I put a fair bit into that, and I think I, I, both of those combined are our babies. They're like they're they're the combined output of Steel City. Um, if you directly want to get in touch with us, um, either join one of the kind of big discords that the game has, because you'll see us posting in there a lot, and you can just message us. And um, Reddit has a big uh, Discord channel. Um, or you can, if you pop on one of our blog posts, we usually put our email address on there and you can comment directly on those posts. Um, any of those we'll see. Also, if you see us on one of the Facebook groups, um, you can just give us a bell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Tom's 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 going to be mad at me for this. We also have our own Facebook page, uh, Steel City Underworld. If you give that a like, um, we'll often just post like general musings and stuff and letting people know an article's coming or something like that. Um, that's absolutely that's actually probably the best way direct way to get to us the facebook group right on yeah facebook pages are, are neat L- lots of really cool avenues for um the community and the content creators uh to kind of interact and, and chit chat so um really happy that you've shared those platforms and you know are receptive to people reaching out I would say there's one other big Discord you can find us on. We uh, we do frequent and often chat on uh, your Discord, the uh, Path of Glory Discord. Um, you've mostly got us on there because we really enjoy this Grand Alliance League. But yeah, discussion on there is pretty good as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate the plug there, and and absolutely, and and I know that you uh, uh, you're always like liking or you know em- emoting on some of our announcements. So that is noticed, and we do appreciate it for sure. Um, so appreciate your support there. And uh, yeah, you know, there's lots of ways where we can communicate. So, Mike, I want to thank you for coming on. I think you have broken your own record of being on Path to Glory the most at this point. Um, so, obviously, we love having you. Hey, I I think that's number time number five. It might be. Yeah, you've been. It's your second Warband Wisdom episode, and we've had you. Th- yep, yeah, it's five. Yeah. I need to win the Grand Alliance tournament now for the for the sixth. Yeah, you can you can be Michael Jordan. Get you know get your six uh, get your six rings. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks for having me. Any- yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to kind of impart your wisdom with uh, for anyone listening in regards to Molog before we uh, kind of go with the outro? I think uh, actually, you know what? I'll just say a bit of a a bit of a like so. We've touched on this a bit. Um, there has been sometimes in the past, mostly when Molog was a bit overpowerful, a bit of a negative reaction towards the warband. I think um, people struggle to deal with the ways in which he breaks the rules. And if you're not used to playing against him, he absolutely is a noob stomper. 
Um, I would just say kind of look at it with a bit of a, maybe not necessarily more an open mind. I don't mean to sound patronizing, but try try putting yourself in the Morg's shoes and see the way you lose the game. And you will quickly realize, especially at this point in the game, he is absolutely a reasonably balanced warband. He is not broken. Um, and kind of embrace the different ways he plays it. Right on. Well, you heard it first from uh, Michael Carlin, the leading authority on Molog's Mob. Probably, I think you have the most reps with him. Maybe ever, I think. I think you've been consistently playing him all of Beastgrave and Nightvolt. Yeah, I, the, I, the only time I didn't play him Beastgrave was right at the beginning when I was on Grimwatch, really. Yeah, and yeah. then you tried Rippers for a bit too, but... That was less successful. Right. We, don't, we don't talk about Rippers. <laughs> right on, okay. Well, everyone, that's it for this episode. If you have any feedback, questions, or comments, let us know on Facebook at pathtoglory.com. You can also follow us on Podbean, where you can find the show notes for this episode there. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, as well as uh, Apple Podcasts as well, or Amazon Podcasts, rather. Um, thanks for listening, and as always, we wish you the best of luck on your Path to Glory. Nice. I had to do that, sorry. <laughs>